morning we are in Ephesians, but we are not ready yet to tackle chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to have a long running up to the starting line on this passage. And let me begin by saying that we live in a day when truth, as you know, has fallen on hard times. It used to be even in the unbelieving world, that everybody assumed there was such a thing as absolute truth. There was something called right, and there was something called wrong. There was something called good, and there was something else called evil. And the two were never destined to meet or be confused with each other. In modern times, it was believed that the scientific discoveries and new technologies that had come along would eventually lead us to understand everything there is to know about the world and everything beyond the world. Truth in modern times could be discovered by the scientific method. And as long as we were careful to apply this approach consistently across all fields of study, we were sure that we would discover all that is true. Unfortunately, this approach, apart from the word of God, led absolutely nowhere. So that when, through their new inventions and scientific studies, leading scholars got to the end of their search, there was nothing there. Nothing they could agree on, anyway. They still could neither affirm nor deny the existence of God. And when faced with that dilemma, the majority of them just choose to deny They still had no firm foundation upon which to build a platform for ethics or morality, let alone law. They were just lost. Lost as ever before. And that, in a nutshell, is what led to the present age that we call post-modernism, after-modernism. When we got to the end of all that modernism promised, we looked across the great expanse we had discovered, and there was nothing there. All that modernism promised, all of the scientific method, all of our human inventions and discoveries led to nothing of substance. And so we came to the conclusion that there really is nothing that is absolute. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And so... All we really have is not absolute truth, but absolute experience. And experiences can be interpreted any way you want to. And so what is true for you is not necessarily true for me. You have your truth and I have my truth. And the key to a happy society, they say, is learning to accept diversity and be tolerant of one another's experiential choices. And that's the message that we hear Every day of our lives, if you dare to watch television or listen to the radio. And that's kind of where society is right now. There is no accepted ethical, moral, or legal absolute to build upon, so everyone just does whatever is right in their own eyes, and everyone else just looks the other way. No wonder there's so much confusion in our culture right now. We just jettison truth. We just cut off the branch we've been sitting on. And now our nation is pretty much in a free fall. Unfortunately, we see the same thing happening in the church. The same ideological trends that have been chipping away at the culture is now chipping away at the body of Christ as well. 
Even conservative evangelical communities are beginning to buy the old liberal argument that Christianity is supposed to be experience and not doctrine. The old liberals wanted to discard the core Christian doctrines but still call themselves Christians based on their lifestyle and on their experiences. John MacArthur writes, the, only, the original fundamentalists rescued evangelicalism from the liberal threat by unashamedly declaring that Christianity must be doctrine before it is a legitimate experience. Christianity, if it does not spring from essential Christian truth, then it is not authentic Christian experience. Doctrine must come first. Truth must come first. Experience must be measured on the truth. Otherwise, in God's eyes, it's an illegitimate experience. But postmodern Christians don't want absolute truth, do they? They want Christian experience without Christian doctrine. That's why even someone like Charles Coulson, with all of his confusion, wrote this. If I were to ask you what you'd call a person who believes in astrology, reincarnation, and communicating with the dead, you'd probably say a new ager. Well, you might be surprised to learn that sometimes the correct answer would be a, quote, born-again Christian. 25% of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians, which, by the way, does not necessarily mean they are one, 25% of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians in a recent study believe in the, possible, the possibility of communicating with the dead, 25%. A third believe in reincarnation and astrology, and half say that they believe in psychic powers. And half of those who were interviewed told the interviewer that the various religions of the world are equally good and equally true. Born again, he says, and evangelical are no longer a matter of believing certain doctrines and teachings. Rather, they are a matter of a particular experience, an experience that a person says changed his or her life but it has nothing to do with the truth. Is it any wonder that the American church seems to the rest of the world to be adrift? Do not think that you can pick up the phone book and pick any Baptist church or any two Bible churches and assume that both are standing unshakably on a common body of biblical truth. It's just not that way anymore. We've almost got to, gotten to the point where it's every man for himself, every pastor for himself, every church for himself, whatever you feel like doing, whatever you think is true. Because the idea that the Bible is God's infallible word to be rightly divided and decisively obeyed has become passé. And while the new approach to evangelicalism feels kinder, gentler, and more user-friendly, it's lost its bearings in ways that matter most. We are adrift. And here's been the result. You know what the result is? Larger and larger churches packing in weaker and weaker professing believers, some of whom aren't even truly saved. Many of whom are not even truly born again. How can it be that so many men in the church are defeated by pornography? How can it be that so many women in the church are defeated by fantasy and materialism? How can it be that there is so much immorality, not only in the youth group, but in the pulpit as well? The answer, at least in large measure, 
is that we are reaping the bitter consequences of having sold our devotion for the truth for a warm bowl of religious experience. We want our experiences. And if we get the truth too, that'll be icing on the cake. But we don't need truth. We need something else. And so we come up with all kinds of things to give people new, ex- new Christian experiences. We redesign church so that every Sunday is a new experience. We bring all kinds of things into the body of Christ and make it a dog and pony show so that people feel good about what's happening. We have big conferences that are made to be pep rallies spiritually and, and rah-rah, go team. And you know, there's nothing wrong with appropriate biblical experiences. Praise God that he's given us the Holy Spirit. Praise God. I mean, every day of my life, I tell you, I'm looking for a Christian experience. I'm looking for the joy of the Lord every time I go to prayer. I'm looking for the peace that passes all understanding every time I have an issue that I bring the Word of God to bear on in my life. I'm looking for the electric thrill that I get whenever I have the privilege of leading someone to Christ. I just don't need all that other stuff. I can't hardly handle the experiences that I'm having with the Holy Spirit. Who needs all the false stuff? Who needs all the hollow, superficial stuff? When, when you've got the real thing, you've got all that matters. Let me be clear. I believe the reason so many Christians live such spiritually and morally defeated lives is because they have jettisoned the weighty ballast of truth and replaced it with the superficial feel-good experiences that are useless for keeping their vessel upright when the waves of trial and temptation begin to crash. We want to feel good without thinking right. We want to build the house without bothering with a foundation. We want to bear the fruit without sinking the root. We want microwave Christianity ready in ten minutes or less without any fuss. It's like the man who said, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And make it quick. But you know, that's not reality. That is not reality. That's not how it works. If you are going to be a victorious Christian life with whom God is pleased, you cannot pick and choose which parts of Christianity you like and which parts you don't feel good, therefore you reject. It's a package deal. It's all or nothing. Either God is God and we are his created people or we are God. And we have made him in our own image. And so our faith is idolatry. If you're going to bear the fruit, you've got to be grounded in the truth. If you're going to bear the fruit, you've got to be grounded in the truth. And so as I said last week, the reason that we love and we teach and we go out of our way, both in the women's ministry and especially in the men's ministry, the reason we love sound doctrine is because we have discovered 
that it's the sound doctrine that produces depth. And depth produces strength. And strength produces victory. And victory produces joy in the Lord, knowing that he's pleased with our lives. That's why we love it so much. We don't want to short-circuit the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And so we pour ourselves into the truth and allow the Holy Spirit to pour his truth into us. That's why in Ephesians... Paul says that we need to be ever seeking to learn what pleases the Lord. It's a lifetime of education. It's education, as John Piper would say, education for exaltation. We want to learn how to be joyful worshipers in Christ who live holy and godly lives. Now that's a powerful, biblically authentic spiritual experience, if there ever was one. But here's the thing. We take this treasure that God has given us, the greatest treasure in the world, and we've tossed it aside for meaningless pleasures and things that aren't worth nearly as much. We've exchanged the glory of God for something of lesser value, and we stamp Christian on it, and we think that all is well until the first storm comes. And we don't understand why our ship is going down. And I get a phone call. Help me, Pastor. And the first question I'll ask is, how's your quiet time been this week? Quiet time? You mean reading the Bible? What does that have to do with my wife? What does that have to do with my kids? What does that have to do with my job getting lost? It's everything. Everything. The truth is the ground that you sink your roots in. I'm asking you, are you sinking your roots in the truth every day? Because if you're not, that's where we have to start to get you back up on your feet. So what does all this have to do with the book of Ephesians? Everything. Everything. Because if, you don't restra- if we don't restrain ourselves, we will skip chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we will jump right into the practical exhortations of chapters 4 through 6 and end up sabotaging the very goal we've set out to achieve. In other words, the issues of how to have a good marriage, how to break a stubborn moral habit, how to raise godly kids, and how to be a Christ-exalting employer or employee, which are the issues of chapter 4 through 6 and others, All of that is grounded in the fundamental doctrines explained in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so if we skip the first three chapters, it'll be like building a house without a foundation in the sands of the Atlantic seaboard in hurricane season. It just won't work. And you will be disillusioned. And you'll come away saying, I thought I did it the way the Bible said to do it. No, you didn't read the directions. See, chapter... uh, Chapters 4, 5, and 6 tell you about the finished product. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the technical manual for getting you there. And so this morning, we're going to begin the hard work of mastering the biblical doctrines that Paul believed were so crucial to living a victorious Christian life. But unlike other studies that we have done in the past, and will do again starting next week, I don't want to take any particular set of verses to work through with you this morning. Rather, 
Rather, I want to spend some time trying to get our arms around the whole issue, the, the, the most prominent issue, the most important truth in the book of Ephesians. As I pointed out last week, the phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, is used perhaps, give or take, 35 times in these short six chapters, which you can read probably in 20 to 30 minutes in a single sitting. 35 times in Christ or its equivalent is mentioned by Paul. Think of it as kind of the doctrinal glue that holds all the little details, all of the pieces of the book together. If we can get our arms around these two words, which may not be as easy as you think, but if we can get our arms around these two words, we will have taken a giant step forward in our understanding of Paul's message. If I might simplify it a bit, let me say that since half of Paul's letter is doctrinal and half is practical, perhaps we can say 50% of victory in the Christian life is won by believing what it means to be in Christ. 50% of victory in Christ, victory in the Christian life is won by believing what it means that you as a Christian, as a genuine believer, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, are in Christ. I tell you, this has been a fascinating study for me. I'll, you know, my wife and I walk at night to get our exercise, and uh, uh, it was just a week or so ago I was telling her, you know what, I can't wait to get in this. I've always wondered what this meant in Christ. I mean, I've had a hunch. I've had my ideas, but I've never studied it. I can't wait to study this. I tell you what, this is rich. You ready? Let's take a look. Let's take a few minutes to get an understanding of what the terms mean, and then we'll look at four things that we must believe in order to have a victorious Christian life. So first of all, what does it mean when Paul says that we as Christians are en Christo, in Christ? Let's read the first part of this, and we quoted this last week. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. There's the first mention of the 35. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are in Christ? Whenever you see the term in Christ, we should understand that Paul is speaking to the issue of the marvelous union. That's the word I want you to write down if you're taking notes. It's a marvelous union that the genuine believer shares with Jesus. That is, when God saved us, he did much more than just blot out our sin from the heavenly scoreboard. Far beyond that, he also began, listen to this, this will help you. On the day that he saved us, and we'll see next week in chapter 1, Almost, an, I guess, an eternity before then, before the foundation of